Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brendan Buddha. We're back with our coverage of Blackwood's Baby by Laird Barron, originally published in 2011. This is the second of two episodes we're doing on this story, and, uh, well, it's our discussion episode. And these are bonus episodes that were commissioned by a very generous Patreon supporter. We got four commissions in this order, three of them for Elder Sign, and this is the last of them for this show. And uh, we've been working on these stories for about a month now. Two of them were novellas. So we've been really immersed in this and it has been a great experience. <laughs> so we just want to say thank you so much for the opportunity to do this and for inviting us to share in your love of these specific stories, which we have really enjoyed as well. Yeah, as we said last episode, it's been a real pleasure, a real joy. Uh, I'm so grateful that we were able to read these stories and sharing uh, with our listeners what they love and getting to talk about it. And it's awesome. So let's continue to talk about it, Glenn. Let's just get right into the discussion. Yeah. So I want to start by by going through the plot and, and the world, just answering some some questions, really. And the the first topic that I've got here is to to think about the the stag and this religion, what I you know, what I called woodsy paganism in the uh, in the recap. <laughs> and so I guess the first question is, hey, what is the stag? That is a an excellent question. I think the stag is another form or representation of Bill, of this woods monster, this woods deity. Um, that's why it's not killable. I think this is the stag that has been around from the beginning. I don't think there are many generations of it. And I think it's a form that this uh, Bill, Splayfoot Bill, can take. Uh, what was your sense of it, Glenn? I mean, that was my sense as well. I don't believe this story about how the, the devil took on the form of a doe and uh, some dude mated with the doe and then created the the stag here, Blackwood's baby. I think that there just, there is a monster in these woods and that this is that monster and that some of the stories about it are about a stag. Some of the stories maybe are about a, a, a person. Does that mean it can change form or not? I That I'm not sure of. Of, uh, you know, is it might just be that, you know, people have these creepy experiences in the woods. And let's be clear, the people who are telling the about the experiences they've had in the woods have survived them, which probably means they didn't actually get that close. Right. So right. what is it that they're saying about their experience? You know, sometimes, you know, they, they maybe thought there was a person with horns, right? He's called the horned one anyway. And maybe it really was just always this stag. But it certainly is a numinous being. It is a supernatural being of some sort. What we are seeing here is a religion, right? People are worshiping this thing. They are making offerings. They are sacrificing to it. Do you think that this is actually some kind of divinity, right? We do get it speaking, or at least we have that happening from Luke's perspective. Is it actually divine and sentient in some way? Or is this just a weird life form or, you know, just a supernatural monster? I, I guess if you were having to put this, you know, in a gaming manual, what category would you put this under? Well, that's a great way to frame the question. Uh, I Before I answer, I want to think a little bit about what you said in terms of it being worshipped um, and what that behavior might look like to an outsider. So when we think about 
religions or maybe pre-Christian religions or paganism, there is this sense that what it's practitioners, what the worshipers are doing are trying to follow some sort of formula of rites and rituals in order to make sure the gods don't punish them or do bad things. So there's, there's a level of control that the practitioners expect a control over the God, I should say, as a result of their behavior. And when we look back and maybe critique some of these rites and rituals uh, that make sure the sun rises or it rains during the right season or things like that, we have a totally different explanation for that stuff, a scientific explanation, um, because we don't really think of the world as enchanted. But as I said in the recap, if you spend enough time out in the woods or in you know big sky country, as I called it, uh, enchantment creeps back in really fast. And so what I might suggest is that there is some sort of unexplainable monster. We'd call it a monster, but it could be a creature that is impossible to study because it's so sturdy. It lives a long time. It looks like a stag, but it's totally something else. And that this practice of appeasement is really based on superstition. Um, So what has worked up until this point might not work all the time because that's just how things go. Like This is not a story about Lanscombe and Wellick offending the deity in some way by like living the wrong type of life. And even though they're doing the appeasement, they're not doing something else that pleases the God. So this story really captures that fear and tension in that enchanted worldview when it comes to appeasing gods, because you don't actually know what they want, but you do know that say, if you sacrifice children, you might get a good harvest or something like that. Um, and so I think that Baron really excellently handles that aspect of superstitious belief and, uh, an enchanted worldview. And so I can't definitively say within the text, whether it's a deity or not, but I can say that the behavior of Lanscombe and Wellick and their family and the superstition around this hunt and the woods and this beast really do fall in line with the behavior of people who believe in an enchanted world and in rights to appease a god's ire or to make sure they get what they want. So Lanscombe and Wellick don't want anybody dragging children from the neighborhood that they live in into the woods in order to appease this God. So they've set up this other sort of ritual. So I really like the way that Baron has infused the story with like a consistency of that worldview of giving Lanscombe and Wellick these motivations that are about appeasing the God to protect the townspeople or the peasants. And, you know, another, if this story were to take, take place in the 17th or 18th century. Um, but it, leaves us as readers with the inability to actually answer the question you just asked, because we know that things can be disenchanted when we study them. There's just no way to study this thing. Exactly. I, I do think there is some tension here, right? That, that Baron is asking us to think about whether or not we think this is is really supernatural or just some sort of weird natural creature. I mean, this is happening right where Bigfoot lives too, right? So, yes. you know, lots of things going on here, possibly, right? Thing, you know, cryptozoology type of stuff. But I do think that there is something numinous about this this creature. Uh, you know, I think it is, you know, something that we might think of as being a uh, god, you know, it's lowercase g, 
type of, of thing. It certainly has some kind of supernatural power. And I, I love the way that you're, you're characterizing the worship of this thing, the religion, the cult uh, around this thing that is really about uh, appeasing it. And, and it is about superstition. I'm a Cubs fan, so I know all about superstition. I know this <laughs> feeling that when things are going really well, it is obviously because I have not changed my socks for five days. But then some other time, maybe I don't change my socks and things go wrong. What I know is not that my socks have nothing to do with the outcome of baseball games. What I know is that I did something else wrong and it's up to me to figure out what that is. And I believe that <laughs> firmly in the core of my being because I'm a Cubs fan, which is a type of uh, affliction that I would not wish on, on anybody. We're going to happily let our baby grow up as a Phillies fan or whatever he wants it to be. But the point is that that I think is what's happening here, that they feel like they've made some kind of arrangement with the stag with Blackwood's baby. And maybe it is sentient and maybe it is able to have conversations with them that what Luke experiences with it talking through him, maybe that is true. I'll, I'll believe that that's a, an objectively true experience, even though we're getting it subjectively through the lens of, of Luke Connie. So they certainly think that this arrangement is working for them, is going to work out. But that's only because it does for a little while until this supernatural being says, eh, you know, I'm altering the arrangement, right? Pray I don't alter it any further, right? That <laughs> I've decided that, yeah, for a while, you bringing me one hunter was fine. I'll eat that. But there's clear indications in all of the backstory that this thing used to like to take a lot of people. And maybe it's back for that, right? <laughs> right, exactly. And, you know, even Luke's experience of this, the subjective lens through which we see it is also accompanied with a lot of other visions and dreams and other weird stuff that Luke experiences. Um, I, I agree with you that this Blackwood's baby isn't a real kind of numinous. It's, a, it's a, got some metaphysical stuff going on. It could really be the devil. Luke certainly believes it's the devil. Uh, and that leads to his sense of hopelessness. And yeah, I think that that's what's going on in the story. But I think Laird Barron does such a good job of building that hopelessness into Luke's character already that even Luke's motivations here are more rooted more rooted in his backstory, in his previous fever dreams than they might actually be in what's going on. Like his gun might not be useless. He could end this today, but he's his belief in the devil, his own superstitions, his own sense of the enchanted world have stopped him from acting too. And I think Laird Barron is just brilliantly placing these characters in an enchanted world. And I really love that about this story. You are anticipating where I would like to get to, uh, not quite next, but a little bit after that. But before we get to talking about Luke and what's going on on the, you know, the last page of this story, I, I want to keep thinking about this religion, you know, from a historical standpoint. And the question I'm really interested in is who started this religion? Because we get two conflicting stories here. One, we are told that 
the thing in the woods that people are aware of and have been doing things to appease is uh, not just something uh, is not just a phenomenon of settlers from Europe. Uh, this is something that the indigenous population, the Native American population, has been aware of. They have stories about this thing as well. They have their own stories about these woods and their own things that they do. But then at the same time, we're also told that there are these British settlers or people with British ancestry who have made their way to this part of rural Washington who have brought brought their old world religion with them. And, and certainly Baron is laying this on rather thick with the character of Scobie and using all this language that just, you know, codes, you know, pre-Christian woodsy paganism, right? Druids, basically, right? No one knows, you know, who they were or what they were doing, but here's a story about it. So my question is, is this a native religion, an indigenous religion, or did this worship come with the British settlers or you know, is it both? My sense is that it's both and that the sort of explanatory power of pagan gods or that pagan gods had for the British settlers became part of what the Native Americans were aware of in this woodsy area. So that it, it it's a combined thing. And obviously this is a part of colonialism too, is that you bring your explanations with you and you use those to explain what is already a phenomena for the local people, um, for the, for the indigenous people and the native people who live there. So I think that the native Americans were aware of this. They already had their own set of superstitions and myths or lore around the horned man. And then along comes this other mode of exp explanatory power through paganism um, that maybe at least one family gave their lives over to in this town. But we'd call this in like colonial fiction. And even in this story, we get this phrase going native, uh, which is certainly a part of how Luke encounters the world. Luke doesn't want to go native. He's concerned that Galtero thinks he's gone native in some sense, which is to say you sort of merge the folklore, the ways of understanding the world of the people that you're colonizing or living with, uh, with your own kind of explanatory power and use it to gain power in that specific region or whatever's going on. Um, but your loyalty is to your own power in that area with those people and no longer with the people who sent you. Um, and that's clearly a big part of the story. The Blackwoods family, in other words, has gone native in this, uh, in the lore of this story. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think that they have brought this own tradition with them. So when they get here and discover that there is a supernatural monster living in the woods that is definitely going to eat some people, and maybe you can appease it in some way, and it also might be giving you stuff as well. That's perhaps part of the, the deal. And say, oh yeah, we've got stories about that from Wales or England or Scotland and France as well about, you know, things in the woods, right? And that's, I think, the world that Baron is, is building up here is that, yeah, wherever there are woods, there's something like this. Maybe not every 
maybe not every corner of every wood, but wherever there are woods, there is, you know, something like this in some remote corner of it. And we all have this type of story. There's a kind of universalism to this, right? Where, uh, or maybe even almost a, a pantheism to this, where we've all got different versions of the same basic idea, because that same basic idea is true. You just call it this and we call it that, but it's all talking about the same type of, of thing. So that's definitely my sense. But then I have one more question about the, the, the who did what here. And this is just about the statue. And my question is, who made the statue? But, you know, I have this question, I guess, because if we were reading a Lovecraft story, for sure, this statue would predate the settlers. It would predate European arrival in the, the New World. This would be an indigenous statue. He would, he would you know, make something important of this, right? I mean, this is the sort of thing we get in The Call of Cthulhu, but we get it in other stories as well. But here, I'm not so sure. I'm not sure if this is a statue that is an indigenous statue, that it's already here when European settlers arrive or if this is something that the Europeans have put up. What do you think about that? Well, you've just made me want to research whether or not there are, are uh, marble quarries in the like in Washington <laughs> right. State, <laughs> because we know what the material is, and the uh, you know sort of Marxist critique of the story would be like, <laughs> "Hey, where did it come from? Who brought who brought what? Where? Uh, how? Where, how are resources moving around? I mean, you know, at least in terms of the mode of history. But I, I have no idea. I, I think. Man, I, I just don't know. I'd, I'd really want to approach the question in terms of like, do Native Americans in Washington state, is there a history of them quarrying marble? <laughs> you know, what did that look like? And did they represent deities in this way? My sense is that they would have used, you know, like wood or timber, which would have been way easier to use than marble. And so that this statue came over from Europe and that's why it's marble. It's not anything else. And so my ignorant instinct uh, based, you know, based on a total ignorance of the history of materials is that it, it, somebody brought marble with it and it's brought over or built by settlers who were able to, you know, order marble through the, uh, you know, 17th century mail order catalog uh, that you could get blocks of marble from. Right. Yeah, this is the sort of thinking that I didn't do about the statue that I definitely did about M.R. James stories as a material object when, you know, I needed to know definitively, could you get uh ghost stories of an antiquary in 1912 <laughs> in a bookshop in Utah? And the answer is no. Like I had to find that <laughs> right. out. This I just kind of overlooked and threw here as a discussion question. But I think your instinct is right, though. I do also think that Lovecraft would make this same move. He would say, yes, our, our pop culture understanding of indigenous Americans is that they didn't have this type of stonework. I'm going to say that they did, or at least these particular people living here in this small corner of rural Washington did, because I want them actually to seem strange because I'm also making up a whole culture for them here where they worship this, you know, this black <laughs> stag in the woods and, you know, have human sacrifices and so on. And I actually want them to be set apart even materially from other ideas that we have about what uh, Native Americans were like and actually even maybe showing that one of the things they've received by making human sacrifices to this stag is knowledge of stoneworking or, or you know, something like that. I think that's the Lovecraft move. So uh, you know, I think I may be a little more on the fence here than you are about it. This would be a fun question to kick to uh, listeners, though, to you know, join us on the forum or, or Reddit to talk about who you think built this statue. So let's move on to the experience of Luke Cunningham. And here the question is simply, 
Does Luke die on the next page or does he make it out of this story? I think he makes it out of there. I really think the last couple lines of this story, the last senses of Luke that we get, I really loved how you pointed out in the recap episode, how little we actually know about him, how little seems to add up, which isn't something I really thought about. But I think when we get to the end of the story, the one thing we're sure about Luke are his beliefs, um, whether or not the stories he tells about himself are true. And so I think that him saying my hell is to testify and that his being convinced that he's condemned in some way, all sort of work together to communicate to us that he believes his role in the world is to witness the worst things, um, which goes maybe back to World War One, which goes back to his surviving this tragedy, this experience with his brother, which I've thought a lot about. And why would somebody who discharged a gun improperly, resulting in the death of somebody when they're a teenager, lead them to a career where they just use guns all the time? Very, very troubling thought. I, I, I don't know if I quite have an answer for that. Um, but it's something I've thought a lot about. And I think he believes, I don't think he dies in this story. I think he goes on. Maybe my canon, my head canon of what's going on with Luke is that he's going to somehow end up witnessing some of the worst parts of world war two that like the world has not shown him enough hell yet. And that there's more coming because we get, we get earlier on in the conversation between the hunting party, the knowledge that world war two is ramping up. Um, and so that to me was put in the story intentionally to remind us that, hey, there's more hell on the way in the 20th century. And as, as we've said, this is our first Laird Barron story. So we have no idea. It's totally possible that Luke Honey is a you know, recurring character. <laughs> and he, this is his origin story as he becomes maybe not a cult detective, but a cult hunter, right? Uh, that that might be true. But I had the totally opposite sense than you did. I, I think he dies here. I think that he has given up. I think he's always wanted to die and has been looking for a way to do it. And this is a pretty good one. I, I do think that if he had shown up and found Arlen alive and could have gotten him out of there, he was definitely going to do that. Because, of course, the thing he wants to do most in the world is save the life of a kid. It's his younger brother, right, Michael. But, you know, Arlen will do just fine. So I think, he, you know, you know his death wish isn't that uh, in, intense that he would sacrifice others there. But I think in this situation, I just have the sense that he's just going to sit there and wait for this to happen. But I think that, you know, you've read something, or at least I'm going to, you know, maybe take a cue from something you've said and, and, and promote this reading for, you know, the sake of discussion <laughs> that, hey, what if this is the devil? And what if Luke's understanding of you know, some kind of mystical Christianity where there's a heaven, there's a hell, there's you know, God, there's the devil is, is real and that, you know, that the devil is here in front of him, his mom, because she was a suicide, is in hell. And you know, this, that's his fault. That's because he accidentally killed his brother because he wasn't being careful enough with his gun. And that he's right, that when this stag or that, you know, the statue speaking through him, right, says, you're already mine. I, you know, there's no making a deal with you when I don't keep deals, but also too, I don't have to because you already belong to me. That what he means by that is that even while you're out in the world, your soul is already mine. You are broken and damaged. You are not a force for good in the world. You kill. You, you in, intentionally punched 
Wesley in the ribs to break his ribs to make him slowly bleed to death. You are mine. You are a killer. You're mine. I actually don't want to take your life. I want to send you back in the world in this way because that's what I'm here for is to make the world uh, an awful, evil place, right? So that's a reading of the story. I don't think I have that reading, but that's one I could get behind. I don't think that Luke Honey is an agent of the devil. I think the devil wants the world as it is to be hell for Luke before he even before he ends up in hell, that there, that Luke believes there's no redemption for himself and that his role in the world is to see the hell in the world and to maybe carry that with him in a way that is automatically destructive, right? Because he's not just a hunter. You did point out that he kills Wesley, but that he doesn't even think twice about it, but because he's already claimed by the devil, um, not that he's going to go on and do things like be a guard in uh, a, a Nazi concentration camp or something like that, but that he, he, he can't do good because he thinks his role is to wit is to witness the evil, just to be a witness of it. And so that stops him, that saps his motivation for changing anything for the good, which actually does make him an agent for evil in the world. I think if we're (laughs) talking ethically here, um, that his lack of motivation to change things for the good is the, the flaw that he has as a character because he believes he's the devil's child. And when I was thinking about you know, him not dying. I really had sort of John Constantine in my tier uh, <laughs> where, you know, he can't die because he's the devils. Right. And so Constantine tries to make that work out for the best for him and for other people. Uh, Luke Honey is, I think, no Constantine in, in this case. Yeah, I, I I agree with you there, though. That's a great that's a great way to to think about it. Constantine is a is a great point of comparison there. Well, there is there is something else numinous, or, or at least potentially numinous, mystical, supernatural going on in the story, and this is Luke's dreams. And I guess really that's the question I have: is do you think that Luke's dreams are I don't know prophetic, maybe, or just just you know numinous, supernatural, mystical in in some other way, or are they just dreams? Is he just a traumatized person who's having dreams the way that we all do? I mean, again, this is what I really love about Laird Barron's representation of living in an enchanted world in this story is that it it almost doesn't matter because of the way that Barron has presented the story to us, whether or not it's true, whether or not you can point to you know, the real reality behind all of this, because what matters most are the results of these beliefs. And I just think that that is such a great way to tell a weird fiction story that the reality of the world at this point, and it's a reflection of our own world. He's Laird Barron's contemporary, you know, with us, they were not reading a 19th century story or early 20th century story. Um, we're reading a story that was written, you know, a decade ago that he's on to something about maybe the way technology yeah I don't I don't want to go on a tangent here if I could um, <laughs> but he's he's maybe on to something about the way that our world is becoming reenchanted and how it's the impacts of those beliefs that matter and that's what makes the beliefs matter so you can talk all you want about truth about objective reality about facts about all this stuff But what this story is giving witness to is the impacts of a person's beliefs. And Luke Honey believes sincerely 
that he is the devil's child on some level. Uh, we've talked a little bit about what that means, that his mother is in hell and that she has, you know, transformed into a demon of sorts and has condemned him for his actions in causing her to commit suicide, as we said, and that he can do nothing to make anything better. And the way this story is told is in a way that it doesn't mean whether it doesn't matter if those things are objectively true. It matters that Luke believes them. And I think that that is such a, a, a great way to update what we were talking about earlier with like, you know, Lovecraft needs <laughs> this statue to have been made by these people. Cause he's really interested in their culture and blah, blah, blah. This is uh, a weird fiction story about the impacts of, of personal beliefs and what might be just the, the re-enchanting of our world through technological progress, through information silos and through this sort of stuff. That's not all evident in the text, but I think Laird Barron has sort of maybe found a way to tell weird fiction stories in the way that the world is being changed uh, in our contemporary uh, time. That might be a crazy answer, but that's what I sensed in the story. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I will say that, yeah, I don't think that Luke's dreams are supernatural in in any way. And and then this just undermines the, the reading that I just put forth about, hey, this actually is Satan. And this is a kind of you know, spiritual battle between the forces of good and evil, the devil and God story. I don't think that's true. And part of why I don't think that's true is that I don't think that these dreams are supernatural. I think these dreams are totally natural. I think this is a story of about a person who is broken because of a traumatic event in his life that has had cascading effects. Um, and, and of course, you know, it's, it's a, a domino. It's, and of course, it's dominoes falling, right? As you know, I, I don't know. It's the same thing as cascading. I'm just mixing metaphors and using <laughs> different terms. It's my thing. It's what I do here. It's what I bring to the show. All right. But that, you know, as, as traumatic things continue to happen, it's all rooted back to this one episode in his life, but they continue to pile up and are taking a toll on him because my sense of these dreams, right, is that they're not something he's had his whole life, that they're new. They're from the malaria, right? He got malaria. He had fever dreams. And as someone who has a lot of fever dreams, right, because I get food poisoning all the time because something is, is wrong with me. Man, <laughs> fever dreams suck. I mean, they are just like hallucinations and they, they can mess me up pretty bad for weeks or months afterwards where just something is just off about the way I'm perceiving the world. And I think that's what's happening to to Luke here, that he's convinced himself that these hallucinatory dreams that he had while he's got malaria uh, have made him think that he's living in some kind of spiritual combat and that he deserves what's happening to him here and have primed him to believe these things about the world, these things that other people believe that may not really be true. Though I do think, you know, to be clear, I do think that the there is a supernatural monster in the woods. Yeah, absolutely. And and for the people who who have uh, fast forwarded through my wild rambling response to this question, I completely <laughs> agree with you. I think your reading here is also dead on that, that Luke Honey is destroyed by an early trauma in his life and that these fever dreams have possessed him. Well, let's let's pick up this thread, and actually, a thread that you you started to tug on a little while ago when you were posing the question of why does this person who at fourteen kills his his brother, who I've been inferring is a younger brother, though that's never explicitly stated in the text, but through and you know an accidental discharge of a of a gun because he's fourteen and doesn't quite know what he's doing with it, he suffers this. It's clearly traumatic for him. 
But then he goes and lives a life where what he does is work with guns and kill things. And that seems to be a real motif here. And I'm I'm switching into our sort of themes segment of the questions that I've got here, themes and motifs segment of questions that I've got here, where war and, and other types of violence are in the background here. They touch every character or almost every character in the story. It is a story about dudes with guns who want to go kill a thing and, you know, end up not killing the thing and in fact largely end up being harmed in the end. But just like you were talking about earlier, Brandon, that you had a, a hard time tying that all together. I am too, but I, I you know, can we try to make some sense of this? What is what is Baron doing with all of these images of war and violence? Is there a central reading here that we can use to to tie that all together? Let me start by saying that several days ago, I remember having a glimmer of insight here that I have since completely forgotten. Um, was it in a fever dream? It, it probably was. I probably <laughs> ate some bad food yeah. or something like that. Uh, <laughs> some frozen fish or something. Uh, but uh, yeah, I have, I, I really struggled with this. And this to me is, you know, you mentioned for you, the, the weakness of the story um, was the exposition that Williams puts out. But for me, you know, if there is to be a weakness in the story, which I think it's fair to say, um, you know, we both experienced maybe different weaknesses in the story that we loved it. This is what it is for me is really having a hard time tying Luke's life to his trauma. You know, one way that, that post-traumatic stress operates is in you know, as we see in the dreams that Luke Honey has, is is in one's relationship to time, that one is constantly being drawn back into the time and maybe even the events that the drama that the trauma has occurred in. And so mentally your relationship with time gets really screwed up. And this is a technique that we see in fiction in stories about trauma as well, like the most famous example being Slaughterhouse Five, right? Um, Billy Pilgrim is unstuck in time. And I wondered then if Luke's behavior, his becoming a hunter, his working with guns was maybe almost like a behavioral therapeutic technique that he stumbled across where he's like, if I master this, then that might make the trauma go away. Clearly he's he's recognized that if he stays away from guns forever and look, maybe he was drafted in the war and he had to fight with guns anyway. So maybe he's using like some mode of exposing himself to the trauma in order to master it, in order to move beyond it, which is or can be effective. But I also think that the malaria dream undid all the work that he had done. But clearly there's also some really self-destructive tendencies in him that his hunting dangerous animals and using these guns is maybe a way of approaching that trauma but it's also a way of him ending it because he can be killed. Um, And so I think he's really complexly motivated in that way, but I really have a hard time explaining just what is going on with him. Yeah, I do too. I'll I'll clarify one thing that you said there, though, which is that we we do know in the text for sure that he didn't participate in the first world yes, that's war. Yes, right. mm-hmm. He was he was too young. Uh, that's where we get some of the the timeline and some of the dates that allowed me to uh, take issue with whether or not he could have read M. R. James as as a kid. Uh, yeah, so that that's definitely how I felt about this as well. That I loved this as a motif, but I had trouble putting it 
altogether and, and maybe making sense of it. Other than that, I think it's really also important that this links up with class, which is the, the other motif that I want to try to put together here. Because again, I don't have a real coherent reading of this other than that say that Baron really is pointing out to us people's class, their station in life, and how all the and how all of these people interact with each other. Uh, that we have contrasts, we have comparisons, and of course, all of these people, uh, whether or not they actually are of a higher class or a lower class, they are now people who have access to money in some way and also love to use guns, right? That using guns is something they do for fun, uh, though it is also, of course, something that Luke does for work, but he does also seem to enjoy it or at least to enjoy being good at it. So the things are are linked up in, in some way and they also are linked up Really, I mean, maybe we should, you know, we talked maybe more about violence in that last segment than we talked about war specifically, but it is the First World War that is looming over all of this, and then the Boer War, uh, just as a singular, so presumably, you know, we're thinking about the Second Boer War, I I guess, uh, you know, looms over everything that we're getting here, and I I guess, you know, there's the Second World War on the horizon that we as readers know about, of course, that the characters do not, And but thinking about the First World War as something that really shakes up society in a number of ways, one of them in being a traumatic moment for so many people, uh, creating, you know, giving us even this language of uh, post-traumatic stress disorder that we used different terms for it at the time, but also shaking up class and the way that, and the boundaries between classes, uh, particularly for Europeans, right? And the ways that uh, people in classes view each other is something that changes dramatically as a result of the First World War. Even in the United States, where we like to pretend that we don't have class, or, but really what we mean is simply that we have class in a different way than than people do in, in Europe, still saw as a result of the First World War, a push towards removing uh, elitist and oligarchic features of our constitution through a series of amendments that gave other people the, you know, that enfranchised people who were previously not enfranchised and also uh, ceased electing senators in a non-democratic way and made them popularly elected by people and and, and so on. Uh, did not get rid of the electoral college, which has become a huge thing that we talk about in our political discourse today, I guess, but, but saw many of these other moves there. So, I, you know, I don't know that I've got anything more to say about it than that. You know, and there's to say, hey, Baron is showing us all of this stuff, but I don't quite know what he's doing with it. I almost saw a uh, flattening of class in the way that we're told invitations are doled out um, to people who can be invited to this hunt, though it's a very sinister hunt. Uh, it's clearly meant to be a sacrifice to this woods God. So like, I don't know if anybody would want to be invited to it, (laughs) but, um, what I mean by flattening of class here is that it's almost that Baron is maybe almost engaging in a critique of meritocracy in some way that you could be an excellent hunter. You don't have to have wealth. You don't have to come from the right family and this sort of thing in order to gain entree into this hunt, this group of people. But in the way it in a way operates as a critique of meritocracy because being excellent is the way that you gain entree into this, this like mode of wealth or being having access to these people or these people's networks or men of industry and have gotten all this money. In that one, it's a critique of the way that people make money in light of war. Um, two, 
that even if you're excellent, even if you're meritorious enough to gain access to the things that maybe wealthy people or people who come from an elite class background have access to automatically, that doesn't shift the status quo really at all. It just changes maybe who's in the elite class. And so that this flattening of class that we see that might be really great, this kind of equality that like, hey, if you're, you don't have to be of a class, this class distinction doesn't exclude you from participating in this, that it doesn't actually change the makeup of society. And so that's sort of how I read it. But I don't know how that's really tied to any of the other themes in the story. I think to be clear, this is a great horror story and super effective. And these elements that Baron distributes throughout the story are really well handled. But this story isn't a tale that's kind of weaving a thematic web. I'm not, I don't think at least, even though these themes are present in the story. So our discussion of this, I should say here, or our trying to tease it out, to me, it doesn't take away from the punch of the story at all. But I, I really, it really also jumped out to me, these themes, in a way that I have a hard time reconciling with the content of this story. Right. One of the things that Baron is really doing here, rather than than playing with these themes, though he's clearly put these in, maybe not so much as themes, but as as motifs. Right. He he is ham he is hammering some of these these motifs quite a bit. But what Baron is really doing here is playing with genre conventions, and he's doing some some mashing up of some classic weird fiction stories and something that is not weird fiction as well, which we are going to get to in the next big subject heading I have, which is genre. But I want to talk about one more motif that we have here in this story before we move on to that category. Which is alienness, right? We, this is something we see all over the story. We've got you know, our protagonist here, Luke Honey. He's expatriated in Africa, right? Uh, outsiders are brought into you know Wolf Vale here to be the sacrifice. The idea is let's stop killing our own people. Let's stop sacrificing our own children to this thing. We could get strangers to come in, and we'll kill them and everything will be fine. There is so much that is made of the fact that the people here are not even just from like, you know, down the road in Seattle or Tacoma or something like that, but they're from England and Texas, that these people have, you know, accents, that there's something strange about them. We've got Scobie is is from Wales and, and so on. Uh, but in the end, something that really struck me when I started thinking about this, in the end, the stag actually takes people from this region, or at least people who, you know, live here currently, right? That they don't actually take, or the stag doesn't actually take the, you know, the people who are here visiting, but takes the people who live here, who work here. Though, you know, Scobie himself is from Wales. It's, you know, unclear that his grandson was born there. I would say probably not would be my guess. But yeah, I don't know. That's something that jumped out to me. I think that's a fair point. And, you know, with regard to the sense of alienness, another word we might use for that is otherness. And that word is all over the story. I mean, at least in two really distinct standout, like jump off the page instances. One is that this Bill character is referred to as like the dark other, which has all sorts of sort of colonial implications to it. Um, But also in the way that Luke sees himself as wholly other from everybody else in the group. And Luke himself, you know, if we're looking at the way the metaphors are working together in this story, the way otherness works in this story, Luke being the other entirely uh, might explain why Bill or 
Blackwood's baby or the stag or, or whatever you want to call it speaks through Luke. Like Luke is the natural courier of this position of the dark other in this story. Um, and so that's another way to kind of wrangle this motif in the story is that it is a story looking at otherness um, and that Luke is clearly the outsider. He's clearly alienated from everybody else. Part of that is from his own trauma, the way he's cut himself off from the world. But part of that is just by his presence around these and among these other people in the hunting party. And so he is the natural representation then of evil if otherness is automatically associated with evil as uh, it so often has been in, in, in our historic past. And there were some interesting comments about race in this story as well, though I don't think enough to make that really stand out as a motif on its own. But we do have Luke Honey as a, a white man in Africa, and there's this phrase, you know, the great white hunter is used several times. It's something that people are are saying to Luke here when he's in Washington. Uh, there, there's definitely something going on there, right? Baron is, is pointing this out a little bit. Blackness, I mean, is a feature of the stag here in this way as well. So yeah, I think otherness is probably a better way to think about it than alienness, though. Again, like we've said with all these motifs, they, they are really here as uh, as motifs and, and not so much a, a, a you know coherent theme, which is not to levy any kind of criticism at the story because it's not what the story is doing. And in fact, I think working with images and motifs that are, are repeated throughout the story is an effective technique. And, and and in fact, this technique really made the story stick with me. I've you know been obsessed with thinking about these things <laughs> as well as the other things. And maybe let's let's move into talking about genre now because I think that's really where Baron is 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 trying to get his structure from is that he's mashing up uh, several different genres, but in particular I think is mashing up three different specific things from literature. One of them is the Wendigo, and we're not, we're not going to go into that too much. Uh, the other one is uh, this great Shirley Jackson story that I, I actually can't believe we haven't done yet. We've done two Shirley Jackson stories, but have not done The Summer People. But it's got the same basic idea as this story, and it actually would be great to do a comparison but I think in the end, really what we've got going on here is that, you know, those are stories that Baron knows really well. They're classics of weird fiction, the genre he writes in. But he's imagined what those stories would be like if Hemingway had written them, right? Like if Hemingway had written them as a kind of Nick Adams story, right? Nick Adams is, is you know, Hemingway's um, recurring character in about 20-something short stories written in the, the 20s and 30s, the period of this story. And Nick Adams is this hunter who has, you know, some troubled past and some you know, traumatic experiences in his past. And I mean, he's kind of a autobiographical character, really not a Mary Sue way of doing that, but a kind of a stand in for Hemingway himself. And that's very much what this feels like to me. I think that's absolutely fair. And I, and I think you're right to point out that Baron is leaning far more heavily on genre conventions than he is on establishing these, you know, themes and motifs. And, and it's really effective. It works for the reader who's like, ah, yes, I love what he's doing with this story. I love what he's doing with the hunting party. I love what he's doing with the woods. I love what he's doing with, you know, the, the broader literature he's read outside of the genre. And yeah, that is super effective. Um, and I, it really did. It, it really is what, what glues this story together. I, I often think that contemporary literature, and we could call it postmodern, 
just, you know, if we're doing periodization here, but contemporary to us, a lot of what's going on is we have so much information and knowledge. Our libraries are packed with all of these books for the past 200 years. We have really well-established awareness. You know, we use the word like meta as kind of a snarky way to talk <laughs> about this, but it's really an awareness of, of genres and tropes that as, as writers or as artists or, or whatever practitioner we're of the arts that we're engaged with, um, what we can do is really just pick and choose our own personal archive and mash it all together. And so mashup is the right word to use here in thinking about a lot of contemporary literature, is thinking of the writer as a kind of, I don't know, hermeneutic archivist of their own past, of their own experiences, <laughs> and kind of learning and getting these this sense of what they've read and what influences them as a writer. And in this story, we, we know Blackwood is, it's called Blackwood's baby. I mean, right. we don't really need to even, we, I mean, it would be maybe going a bridge too far to, uh, in that list of authors that we get in the middle of the story to name Algernon Blackwood, because this story is Blackwood's baby in more ways than one, right? It's not just the name <laughs> of the stag. This is a story that Algernon Blackwood gave birth to, you know, maybe Blackwood's the doe and Laird Bear is uh, the, the furrier here <laughs> and has given birth to this story. Um, but yeah, we, he also names his references and that's not tacky to us as kind of readers of contemporary fiction. Um, we want to know what the references are. We want to know what stories we should read next that influence this writer that created this tale. And that's just part of, I don't know, that's part of our normal cultural landscape at this point. And this is one of my favorite things. Like this is something that I love about speculative fiction is mashing up these different tropes, these different genres, riffing on someone's famous story, but saying, okay, but what if it was told this way? Or, you know, what if it was in, what if that same basic concept was in this different genre? What's that story look like? That's something, I mean, it's what I like to do as a writer, but it is also my, really my favorite thing to get as a reader as well. And yeah, I loved this story for all of those moves. Also just, you know, the wordsmithing in here is quite excellent. It's just a beautifully told tale. So I was super happy to have read this. I have one more thing I want to talk about just very briefly. It's kind of a silly thing, to be honest, but on the topic of genre. So so this story, we, we didn't say at the, the top of either episode where it was actually published in 2011, but it was published in this, uh, this edited uh, volume, an anthology, a collection called Ghosts by Gaslight, Stories of Steampunk and Supernatural Suspense uh, that was edited by uh, Jack Dan and Nick Gavers. It came out in 2011. I actually remember seeing this book in a, in a bookshop. I didn't purchase it. The reason I actually remember this is that it, it came out the summer that I was living in Toronto doing this medieval Latin class at the uh, University of Toronto, where Valerie and I met and you know decided eventually someday we'd start a Star Trek podcast <laughs> together, I, I guess. Uh, and in fact, what I did, and, and there was this really awesome uh, speculative fiction bookshop very near the campus that I, I would go to and browse uh, a lot and you know student didn't have a whole lot of money and what money we did have we were spending at cocktail bars uh, but I did end up buying some books there but of course what I bought 
instead of this collection, though I remember looking through it, was the book The Shadows of the New Sun, where uh, other writers wrote stories in the vein of or in honor of Gene Wolfe. And you know, the idea, of course, of that book was that the proceeds would go to um, help pay for uh, Rosemary Wolfe's uh, medical bills. So I bought that book and a, a few other things, but not this one. So what I really want to get at, but though maybe before we get into the thing I want to ask you, uh, is just to point out that Gene Wolfe actually also has a story in Ghosts by Gaslight. It's the story <laughs> why I was hanged, which is not one that I've read. It's probably one we'll never get to on the Gene Wolfe Literary <laughs> Podcast, get the pace that we're going. So maybe we should take a look at that. That might be fun. Uh, but the question I've got for you, the silly question I have for you, Brandon, is why the hell is this story published in a steampunk collection? Yeah, well, what a good question that is. I, I think it's Baron got the brief, whatever it was, or maybe he was asked to submit a story uh, for this collection. And so he said, okay, I'm going to do the sort of the Hemingway-esque hunting story. I'm going to do the, this story is really rooted in like 19th century, you know, hunting party tales and adventure fiction on some level. Uh, there's really no industry in it. There's, you know, and steampunk is of course, I don't know, England without industry on some level, industrialization like steam power, you know, is what runs everything. So I think that's what kind of snuck him under the radar. But I think he was probably invited to participate in that collection. And this is what he came up with. I don't know if you had a different sense of why that might be in the story, because this is clearly 20th century and a lot of steampunk is, I don't know, 19th century Victorian cosplaying as a writer, I guess. Yeah, I, I'm interested in your characterization of what steampunk is. That's not the conversation I thought we were going to have here, but hey, let's have it. Uh, yeah, because I mean, I think, you know, steampunk is 19th century. That's the whole point. Steampunk is urban fantasy in the 19th century. That's what it is, that it, it is industrial. It's in the Industrial Revolution, and we're just getting some sort of urban fantasy elements there. Or maybe sometimes, actually, I suppose it could be, what if you took steam power and put it into some other fantasy setting? But I think that my real sense of what is steampunk is that it is something that is taking place in the 19th century, and specifically, really, 19th century Britain, but maybe some other places around the world as as well that are using steam power uh, at that point point or other, you know, experiencing other parts of the industrial revolution. But yeah, so this just didn't seem like this was the brief at all. This is after steam power is the thing, right? We've already transitioned really largely to something else. It's not urban in any sense. It's not taking place in Britain. It's in the woods. You know, that's what this story is. So that just, you know, struck me. I was curious about it. I mean, I'm certainly glad that Laird Barron made the sale, right? Um, you know, and I'm glad that we've got yeah, this yeah, story. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> but, you know, it also struck me because we we do uh, all these Gene Wolfe short stories over on the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast. And the point we're at in his career now uh, is that he's not really publishing in magazines anymore, at least not the stories that our Patreon supporters have chosen for us to do, that they've all been in these anthologies where clearly he's being asked to submit something, that he's not having to just write stories and try to sell them anymore, that he's kind of made it by the, the mid-70s. But that every time we see what the collection is, Wolf's story maybe doesn't have a whole lot to do with what the theme is. But we, I have always had the sense, right? And something we talk about is that Wolf just wants to subvert the concept, 
because that's the type of person he is. And I just wondered if that's who Laird Barron is as well, right? Just someone who says, huh, yes, I can take the brief that you've given me and find the precise edge of it and push that a little bit and send it back to you. And thanks for the check. Yeah, I mean, that's entirely possible. And it certainly feels that way. I mean, what I've just revealed here is that I read very little steampunk (laughs) and know nothing about how the world actually works. Uh, I mean, I always think when I think of steampunk, I mean, just to to return to that just briefly, um, I always think that one of the things that the, the, the writers do, yes, it is the Industrial Revolution, but like, I don't know, they're subverting the fuel like what the fuel source is. So it's like something else. It might not be oil or coal, but I mean, I just, I don't read much in the genre. And so like for me, if I were to pick up a collection of, of steampunk stories, which is not something I'm necessarily prone to do, I think this would be my favorite story in there because it's not doing that much with the genre. And so, yeah, I, I, I think that that might be what Laird Barron, it could also be what he has in mind as well as this is what I know. So I'm not going to talk about the industrial revolution in this way. I'm going to take this, like, I'm going to say like, what is the, what is the world outside of the city? Like not the world of the city. Well, in any case, I mean, I think probably there are people in the audience right now saying neither of us have any idea what steampunk <laughs> is. Cause I actually, to be honest, don't read a whole lot of it either. And my, my sense of it is that as you said, you know, steampunk, I think has its roots really in cosplay and that the stories, the, 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 you know, this as a storytelling genre kind of comes later than that. In fact, really, the 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 trajectory, I think, anyway, is cosplay, role playing games, and then actual uh, fiction. You know, published fiction uh, uh, about it. But I would love to know more about that. Clearly, I need to figure out what's a great steampunk book and uh, and and do that over on ATOS. And I don't know, maybe I'll I'll drag you along. <laughs> with me. We can do that together. But also, I would love to check out this Gene Wolfe story and see if he also is trying to subvert the whole. The whole idea of steampunk as well in that way that he loves to do. And actually, when I was looking at this collection again, the table of contents, I thought, why didn't I buy this book when I was browsing in the bookshop? I mean, it was because, you know, I didn't have the money to do it, but it's a great collection and might be fun to get our hands on it actually and and just read through the whole thing, which is something we keep saying we want to do with all sorts of things, you know, like an issue of Weird Tales or something that Wolf published in, which I guess this would qualify for that as well. I don't know. Lots of ideas. But I have fallen back on my old trope of... uh, planning other episodes for us to do as we have gotten near the end of my outline. So uh, that is going to do it for this discussion episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. Uh, you can find us and our other creative projects, as always, at claytemplemedia.com. If you'd like to commission an episode, we'd love to do that for you. So get in touch with us. Uh, you can also join us at a, at a particular level on Patreon to get free commission episodes, um, but at least start the conversation and we'll work out what we can to get you to commission an episode of something that you love uh, for us to cover because we love doing these. Yeah, we really do. We would love to hear what is the story that you've been waiting for us to do that we just you know aren't doing that isn't showing up on ballots and so on. So please do get in touch. And while you're on the internet writing to us about a story you'd like to hear us talk about, please head on over to the Clay Temple forums or our subreddit and let us know what you thought of this story. If you've got some readings of these themes and motifs that maybe we didn't, uh, if you know what steampunk is and want to yell at us about the fact that we do not, I think that might be the uh, the thing that really drives some traffic to the uh, the forums. 
Amazon subreddit uh, for this episode. But we would love to we would love to hear about that. And if you've got a suggestion for a steampunk novel for me to do on Atos, or just a, you know a story we could do here on Elder Sign, we would love to hear those uh, suggestions as well. Lots to talk about in this story that we both really loved. Uh, we're so grateful that we have the opportunity to check out Laird Baron and now also have an entire collection of his to work through. So thanks again to the Patreon supporter who commissioned this episode. Uh, next time, we're going to be back with something. <laughs> you know, as I always say, we never quite know where we're going to end up dropping these. You know, we put them on Patreon, of course, uh, immediately for for people who are uh, at the level to get the commissioned episodes early. And uh, so the person who commissioned the episode has it right away. Um, but you can always find out what we're actually doing next time by checking out the website at claytemplemedia.com. So until next time, until whatever it is we're reading next, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>